Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Master Investor Understanding EIS Guide to Tax Efficient Investment webinar. Uh, so we've got a lot of ground to cover today in the next hour or so, but the first thing we need to do is make some introductions. So my name is Mark Bramage. I'm Director General of the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association. So we're the trade body for the EIS and SEIS industry, and we do a lot of things, including doing information events and education events very much along these lines. So it's certainly much in our, in our full territory today to give you some information this afternoon on this Monday Thursday. Um, I should also introduce my two guests. So ladies first, Fran, would you like to go first? Certainly, hi, thanks, Mark. Um, yes, I'm Fran O'Brien. I'm Head of Investments at Syndicate Room. Uh, Syndicate Rooms have been around about seven years and uh, was sort of best known as an equity crowdfunding platform for a long time with an EIS fund that co-invested alongside the platform investments. Um, and at the moment we have just the one fund. Um, it's a very heavily diversified fund. It makes 50 investments across a year. It's evergreen, open all year round with a minimum investment of 5K. Um, and we invest exclusively alongside Super Angels who we vet based on their um, past investing experience and performance. Thanks so much, Fran. I'm definitely gonna ask what a Super Angel is later on. Please do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, uh, great to have you on board. Obviously, you mentioned diversification, you mentioned funds, all words that may or may not mean something to people. So I'm sure we'll go through a kind of a lexicon of terms and terminology uh, as we go through. But thank you anyway. Uh, Mark, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, I'm Mark Ward. I'm a tax specialist with BDO LLP and I work helping uh, companies qualify under the Enterprise Investment Scheme and the similar SEIS and BCT. Uh, as well as helping individuals understand and qualify for the tax reliefs available. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So we've got all bases covered today. We've got the investors covered with Fran and the investments that she's doing with Syndicate Room. We've got tax advice covered with Mark and the companies that he works with. Uh, you, Mark mentioned there EIS and SEIS and BCT. A hell of a lot of acronyms with this area of investment. So again, we'll explore some of that as we go through um, in the next hour or so. In terms of the next hour, just to give you a bit of an agenda, uh, we'll certainly be done by two o'clock and get you away and back onto your Monday Thursday. I'm sure we've all got things to do for the uh, looming Easter break. Um, in terms of agenda, you've very kindly sent in a whole bunch of questions here that I've got in front of me. So we'll, we'll run through those uh, in a few minutes or so. I thought it would be useful though, to give you a bit of background as to what EIS is and how it works and how it operates, just to kind of set the scene a little bit. Uh, and then I'll ask Franz the questions about the investor side and, and more importantly, the tax reliefs and how they work. So obviously, Super important for investors. Uh, and then we'll move on to Mark and talk about the companies and, and just give us an overview of how companies qualify, some of the main rules, uh, not rules of the ICE legislation, uh, some of the main legislation about how companies can qualify and go through that process. And then we'll fire into uh, more of your questions. And if you do have any questions, please do use the Q&A function or the chat function. We're all Zoom experts by now, so you'll notice at the bottom of the screen. So just fire those through if you have any questions or queries as we go. Okay. Let's get started then. Uh, so this is a bit of an EIS 101. So we should start with the question, what is EIS? So I'll take that one first, if that's okay with the guys and girls here. Um, so EIS was started back in 1994 under conservative government. The idea of the scheme was to help small companies who can't otherwise get access to funding. So if you remember back at that time, if you're old enough, like unfortunately I am, you'll probably remember that banks weren't lending to small companies. It wasn't really an area of investment they were interested in. So there was no way that small companies could get funding or it was very difficult for small companies to get funding. So EIS was created as an equity scheme to try and help incentivize investors to make investments in early stage companies, which as we all know, by their very dint are quite risky companies and the failure rate can be quite high amongst those type of companies. So the government introduced various tax reliefs to try and incentivize or motivate investors to invest in those companies. Uh, and we'll go through those, there's five of them. It's one of the most tax relief schemes in the world, actually. We, we talk to a lot of different countries about how they can replicate the scheme and how they can look at the scheme uh, where they are, because it has been very successful in those 25 years. It helps motivate investors. The scheme's raised over 30 billion pounds um, since 1994 and helped over 30,000 companies. So it's been super, super successful. We think it can be even more successful with what's happening at the moment, obviously, on the back of Brexit. On the back of the COVID pandemic, it's only taken us 10 minutes, we've mentioned COVID. Um, so there's a role we feel that EIS schemes can play in helping to help small companies. So two sides of the fence here, that small companies who need funding can use the scheme to get equity funding into their business. So very important to make note, this is equity funding, not debt funding. So CBLs, bounce back loans that you've probably seen uh, over the last few months that wouldn't qualify under EIS. So this is private investors putting their hard earned money 
into small stage companies uh, and for reward for doing that, for getting that equity stake in that company, they get various tax reliefs, um, which we'll talk about in a second or two. So that's EIS, that's kind of the backdrop to why the schemes exist. It exists because there's market failure, there's a funding gap. Um, and again, that's been very much uh, noted over the last year with what's happening with COVID. Small companies have really struggled to get funding. Investors have kind of run for the hills a little bit and moved away uh, from the risk table. Um, so it's a way of trying to get investors back, trying to motivate them to invest in these small companies. Um, so it's probably a good time to bring Fran back in and talk about some of the tax reliefs. I talked about five tax reliefs, VIS. There's also CDIS as well, which is kind of um, the scheme for really early stage startup companies. So pretty much back of a bag packet type companies. Uh, there's a slightly different set of tax reliefs there, but I'll pass over to Fran to talk about the tax release. And while I do that, I'll put up on screen uh, an idea of tax release just so you have a, a view of them on screen as well as uh, Fran talking through them. Fran, I've talked too long, go ahead. Not at all. Yeah, cheers, Mark. Um, all right, so there are a few moving parts, which is why there's this table that tries to set everything out. So let's see if we can simplify it and focus on the headlines. Um, something that is very important to obviously say is um, the way that EIS relief applies to you as an individual can really vary. Uh, so it is quite important to take independent financial advice before um, kind of committing to understanding the details on the numbers. Um, and of course, you know, the, the availability of reliefs can change. And so it's all dependent on the, uh, the legislation that's in place at the moment. But now, right, having said that, let's talk about some uh, sort of generic figures. So to simplify things, we often tend to give the illustration of a 45% taxpayer investing 10,000 pounds into an EIS company. So those are the kind of numbers I'm gonna work with if I start talking about numbers here and there. So the first thing to note is that EIS, the important date is when the, the shares are issued um, for you, for your name or to the nominee who might be holding them in your name. Uh, you know, and there's a couple of exceptions. So there are certain types of funds, we might talk about them during the course of the conversation. Uh, where it could actually depend on when you invest into the fund. But by and large, it's when the shares are issued. So let's say that that's the tax year that we're working with. You can um, sort of immediately, once you've got those shares issued and typically an EIS3 form in respect of, of your holding, you can apply for what would normally be, again, based on these averages, I'm talking about 45%, 30% of the amount that's invested. So 3,000 uh, pounds worth of relief, but the 10,000 pounds, and this all assumes, again, apologies, assumptions, assumptions, but there's no sort of fees. Let's just assume again, there's no fees being charged anywhere uh, that you can, um, you'll see 10, that full 10,000 pounds goes to work. So that's 10,000 pounds worth investment or investments into startups um, and that immediate income tax relief available of the 30% or 3,000 pounds. And then one of the things that um, is, particularly interesting and often grabs attention around EIS is around capital gains. So provided you hold the shares for what's called the three-year period, um, and that's generally listed, the end of that is listed as the termination date on an EIS-3, uh, there's no capital gains uh, on disposal or when the, um, the next occurs and you receive the benefits back from your investment. So that's quite a nice thing to see. Um, and so if we say, for example, that by comparison, an individual investing um, at the moment of, you know, the 20% capital gains uh, rate of, of tax, that's obviously quite a good, um, quite a good thing. Um, SEIS is the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme. Um, and that's available generally for a company's first external round with investors, um, I'm sure. One of, one of the two marks will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's still the first 150,000 um, that a company raises. But I think Mark's gonna talk a lot more about that on the company side. But just to say on that smaller initial amount, there is um, uh, essentially an even higher uh, amount of loss relief available upfront, uh, sorry, an income tax relief available upfront of generally about 50% because that's seen as even higher risk. And then uh, the other highlight that I'll point out is essentially loss relief. So um, if the company goes on to fail, you can then actually apply for further relief on top. Um, and to illustrate for a 10,000 pound investment that works out at something like 3,150 pounds. And that can be applied to the capital gains of current or future years when you receive that through uh, or income of the current or previous tax year. 
Um, so there's there's quite a lot there's quite a lot there. Let's have a, just another quick look at the table and see if I'm missing anything major. Um, and I would yes, is that bottom one? I wonder minimum holding period of oh yes, of course that's VCTs. Yeah, so I think we'll possibly talk about VCTs separately because of course they are quite quite different. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be questions about whether ISA and pension investments can be put into EIS. Um, and in my experience, the answer is typically it's quite complicated, but I wonder if Mark will say a bit more about that later. I hope that's a helpful, helpful introduction. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the only one I think um, we did talk about was the IHT relief. Um, so obviously if you, hold, if you hold an EIS investment for, for two years, then it should qualify for IHT relief. So right. I think that's yeah. uh, pretty much covers us the five tax relief in that sense. Is the property is there also the property relief after a period of two years? Business property. Yeah, the property relief, relief is the IHD basically. That's what it's based on. Yeah. yeah so got it's it, got the it. same okay. theory. So, Great stuff. Um, okay. the other thing I was going to mention was that I think using your ten thousand uh, pounds analogy, um, you mentioned the capital gains exemption. So just to kind of uh, bring that to life a little bit, if that ten thousand pounds, you know, we hope it will grow to be twenty thousand pounds, for example, and doubles in value, then the gain that you make then you pay no tax on it, which is obviously uh, in an environment where CGT might be going up at the next budget or there's talk of that, then that becomes um, super attractive for an EIS point of view. But yeah, hopefully exactly. just on that on that page there that I'm sharing my screen with, it can get an idea of one, what the EIS and SEIS tax reliefs are, two, compared to VCT, uh, and three, compared to an ISA and a pension. Just to mention the VCT, so um, if you think of a kind of a company's development that SEIS would be the very early stage company. Uh, that's where you, you're, you're investing at the earliest of early stages and you're getting slightly different tax reliefs, a higher income tax relief to compensate you for the slightly higher risk because you're investing at an earlier stage. EIS is at the later stage where they get 30% uh, income tax relief um, for those type of companies. And in VCT, you'll probably invest at a slightly, even slightly later stage than that. Uh, so tax relief is still 30%. Uh, and the only major difference is you get you more likely because the company is more established and a little bit older. You're more likely to get a dividend, and therefore with the CGT, uh, with VCT, your CGT is at that point. EIS companies don't tend to be at a stage where they're paying out dividends, so and even if they are, they would be taxed. So again, that's just pointing out the difference between an EIS and a VCT. There's slightly different limits of um, a VCT. You can only put two hundred thousand into a VCT, or you can put a million into an EIS. But yeah, hopefully you can see on screen there, which I'll take down now. But if anyone wants to have another look at it please do let me know. So, okay, we've covered off um, a lot of the investor stuff, particularly, well, from a generic point of view, there are, as Fran says, quite a few specific questions. We'll fire into those uh, in a minute or two, but it's probably worth going up onto the company side and talking to Mark about, you know, what type of companies qualify, how they qualify. Uh, if you're an investor, this is important because you need to know what type of companies you're going to be investing into. If you're a company watching this thinking, oh, this EIS stuff sounds interesting, it might attract some investors, obviously you need to know how to qualify as well. So, Mark, again, I'll stop talking. Uh, I'll pass it over to you. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, an EIS qualifying company. What is it? Well, broadly speaking, it needs to be independent, unquoted, and a UK trading company, all of which sounds very simple and straightforward. But underneath that, there's a lot of layers of complexity, I'm afraid. Um, independent basically means not under the control of another company. Uh, unquoted is unquoted, but companies that are, uh, are quoted on AIM do qualify um, under the EIS. Uh, it should be a UK company, but it need only have a UK permanent establishment. Overseas companies, for instance, can and do qualify. And it must be a trading company, but at the same time, there's a long list of excluded activities that companies, uh, well, that will disqualify a company. Excluded activities are typically uh, investment activities, trading property, um, property-backed businesses like hotels and farming um, and most energy businesses are, are excluded now as long with the, as along with things like coal and steel production and shipbuilding uh, which don't come up too often these days. Um, Fran mentioned the difference between SEIS and EIS investments uh, and the rules for qualifying companies are, are broadly the same um, except in three key ways for an SEIS qualifying company. This has to be less than two years old, and that's two years old measured from when the company commences trading. Um, it must have fewer than 25 employees, and it must have gross assets of less 
than £200,000. So you can see straight away that we're talking about small, very early stage startup companies. Um, EIS companies on the whole can be up to seven years old. Um, that becomes 10 years for knowledge intensive companies. Uh, they can have uh, up to 250 employees and gross assets of up to 15 million pounds immediately before the share issue. So straight away, it's fairly clear we're talking about bigger, more developed companies on the whole. Um, I mentioned knowledge intensive companies there. That's a whole new layer of complexity. Um, broadly speaking, companies which spend a lot of their money on uh, research and development are likely to be a, a knowledge intensive company. And if you are, if the company is a knowledge intensive company, it can be up to 10 years old uh, and have more employees and raise more money, importantly. Um, I think really, the, if, if you're an investor, the key point about qualifying companies is this work should have been done for you. OK, um, before the shares are issued, the company will normally request something called an advance assurance from HMRC. And that advance assurance application should cover all of these qualification points. It's a full disclosure clearance application. Um, the company has to submit its articles, its shareholders agreements, its business plan, its slide deck. It has to explain what it's going to spend all the money on. It's a pretty comprehensive um, clearance application. So if you are thinking about investing in a company and the company says that it is an EIS qualifying company, you should ask to see their advance assurance from HMRC. Okay. Um, when I'm dealing with BDO clients, I suggest they ask to see the uh, advance assurance letter or email these days from HMRC. Um, but also the advance assurance application so that we can see pretty clearly whether they've disclosed everything that they should have disclosed. And if they've got that advance assurance from HMRC, then that's the best comfort you can get that the company, your investment will actually qualify. Um, and you shouldn't need to worry about um, questions around how much money the company's raised in the last year or in total and whether the company's received any other EU state aid investments or how relevant that is, I don't know. The point is that work should have been done for you before you come to invest. And if the company hasn't done that work, then I'm afraid they really should be told to go away and do it. Um, I think that sort of summarises everything. The, the trouble is it is really, there is quite a lot of complex legislation behind the EIS company qualification. And I regularly can and do um, talk for an hour at a time solely on the subject of uh, company qualification. So uh, unless any of the other panelists think I've missed anything critical, I will hand back to Mark at this point. No, that's great. Yeah, thanks very much, Mark. I'm really glad that you mentioned advanced assurance because I think that's uh, very important and very pertinent because um, you know so many investors rely on the advanced assurance certificate these days. You know, most investors won't invest in your company unless you've got that that golden ticket, which we see as the advanced assurance uh, clearance from HMRC. So. I think also, because um, there's a couple of questions about this around kind of, um, are, can EIS investments be fraud? Can they be rogue? Can they be scams? The important thing about advanced assurance is that every company that qualifies for EIS doesn't have to, it's not mandatory, but 99% will go through advanced assurance. So that's HMRC, looking at your business plan, looking at your incorporation date, uh, looking at your cash flow forecast, so basically crawling all over your business. That is a really effective system for weeding out all the scammers, all the fraudsters, anyone who's looking to just take your money and run effectively because HMRC want to see every document pretty much you have going. So it's a great system, one, for making sure that you qualify for AS, but I think always more importantly to the point that it does weed out the scams and the fraudsters. And EIS and SEI has a very low track record of having that type of investment um, occur or, or people running off with money, thankfully. So uh, that's a great system to have in place, I think. Um, so yeah, there's hundreds of questions here that I'm going to work my way through. Some are on the investor side. I think Mark, the vast majority are probably on the investor side. There's a few on the company side, but I'm sure Mark can answer a lot of questions on the investor side as well. So um, let's kick off and try and go through some of those questions. 
But some of the stuff are kind of more uh, information-led ones, and I should make a caveat actually, which I should have made earlier, that any information we give today is that, it's information, uh, you shouldn't rely on this advice, please go and seek your tax advice from your tax advisor or your accountant before you make an investment or for your, your company going for EIS qualification. Uh, please don't rely on the advice we're giving you, uh, go to those good sources that you know already. Um, minimum investment amount and the period investment. So minimum investment amount is generally around £5,000 for an investment. Most funds will ask you to put at least £5,000 into their scheme before you get going. Um, you can do it lower. Obviously, there's crowdfunding sites these days. We all know Cedars and Crowdcube and, other, and various other funding platforms out there. They will do EIS qualifying companies. They have many of them on their portfolio, on their platform, and you can invest from about £100, I think, these days. So there is that option as well. And there's various angel groups where you can invest at the same time. Pretty good point to make as well that there are different ways of investing EIS. So I've mentioned crowdfunding uh, and there are various forms I'm sure you all know um, uh, that exist there. There is also funds of which Fran, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second or two. So I'll leave that to her. Uh, and there's also the direct route in, in the sense that you're just investing in a single company. So if you know someone, if your mate down the pub is running a company and he's looking for investors and he's got EIS qualification, he might ask you for an investment in his company and you could do that for EIS. Um, so that's another way of, of doing investment. Or you could be an angel investor and be part of a syndicate and invest in a company you do that way. So there are different options and routes to be able to make EIS qualifying investments. Um, Fran, do you want to talk a little bit more about the funds and how they work and how they operate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, there are a few different kinds of funds. So I'm going to talk again about the averages and then a few of the nuances. So uh, a lot of the EIS funds will make around eight to 10 investments um, and they'll make them across the course of a single tax year. Um, and generally speaking, not always, but the, um, the minimum investment levels into an EIS fund are a little bit higher. So it's not uncommon to see a minimum subscription requirement of about £20,000. Um, there are absolutely exceptions. We're an example of an exception because we're, we're, we are one of the lower ones at £5,000 and multiples of £5,000 and there are others. Um, and normally what you'll see is uh, each of those investments is uh, sort of made separately, selected by the fund manager. Um, of course, there are different strategies for different funds. So some are sector specific, they're focused on healthcare, for example, others are more generalist, they're looking to get broad brush. But of course, uh, essentially the, the, the goal in every case is for the fund manager to look to select ones that are going to hopefully go on to really perform and, um, and be winners. Um, and I'll say a bit more about that in just a second. There are there are um, other kinds of funds. Um, there is a, a kind of fund that essentially HMRC calls its approved fund, which always strikes me as a bizarre sense of terminology because it implies that all the other funds are not approved by them and therefore not condoned by them, which isn't true at all. But their so-called approved fund um, issues one EIS-5 form in relation to all the investments made. And, and that's the, um, the, the type of EIS investment that I was sort of hinting at earlier when I mentioned that the tax relief applies to the year in which you make the investment into the fund. Um, and so depending on your tax planning and the requirements that are personal to you, there are all sorts of different funds out there that you know you can hopefully find um, a really good match. Um, and I'm sure there'll be an opportunity during the, the course of the time for me to tell you a lot more about our fund. So I, I won't bang on about that too much now, but uh, one of the things I will say that is quite important is around diversification. Um, and it's something that Syndicate Room itself has always stood for and always felt to be very, very important and wanted to make a point about that because there's one of the, uh, the, the points that comes out of data or analysis around investing that is very uniform and consistent is that uh, the larger you build your portfolio, the more companies within it the better the chance you do have of um, hopefully having at least a small portion of those securing a really significant return to make up for what will likely be a large proportion of losses otherwise, because it is a high risk area of investing. These are startups, many if not most of them will fail. So you really need to sort of have a safeguard in there. So one way you can do that is put your money behind a fund manager that you really believe has a fantastic strategy for uh, going into a particular type of business. The one that we've gone for is really heavily diversified. So we make 50 investments, as I say, we make them exclusively alongside super angels. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um, and, and you know, these are all different ways to try and sort of modify your, your exposure and, 
and look to plan for the future. So not to do down crowdfunding platforms whatsoever, because there are some wonderful opportunities to be had there. But um, you know, an EIS fund will sort of build in that diversification for you, and that's that's quite important. Sure, I think that's a good point. I think EIS funds are a little bit like a cake shop, aren't they? You go in, there's lots of different cakes, and you just find the one that suits you. So you yes. mentioned your fund, and you have a very diversified fund. There are other funds that specialise in particular areas. So it might be medtech, or it might be fintech, or it might be one of those areas. Exactly. They might invest in a, a very much smaller subset companies. I guess usually most funds are investing around kind of the eight to 10, 12, 15 companies. Uh, again, you're, you're, you're your approach is slightly different to that. The other way of doing it, of course, is trying to, I guess, as an investor, almost building your own portfolio. So not going into a fund, yeah. but again, finding single companies and you might find one over here. You might like a bit of fintech, you might like a bit of biotech, you might like a bit of uh, whatever else you might like, um, but then you're building up a kind of portfolio within your own portfolio. So you don't have to go through the fund route. There can be single direct EIS companies that you can invest Absolutely. in at the same time. Um, there's a few questions here that I'm just going to throw through to but both of you, feel free to pick up. Um, as we go through some of them i think will just be one short sharp answers and some might need a bit more so we'll just kind of fire through a few of them so carlos is asking can eis tax relief be carried back to a previous year yes oh, yeah yes you can very much carlos so yeah we're just just about to tick past the tax year end obviously at the moment when we're heading to 6th of april next week uh, you'll be able to make an eis investment on the 7th of april and then carry that back to this tax year so um, i know that's a really useful planning tool for a lot of tax advisors again mark do you want to add anything there no, I think you've covered it. It is, of course, subject to the annual investment limit in each year, um, but that's quite high at £1 million, which isn't an issue for most EIS investors. But yes, you can carry back to the previous year. With people who are investing a lot, the advice is normally, if you can carry back, do, as that will accelerate when you actually get the tax relief, cash flow-wise. Okay. Uh, and secondly, it will leave you with more capacity in the later year. So generally, carry back if you can. You need to look at what your income levels and that sort of thing are in the previous year. Something you should talk to your own tax advisor about. Sure, thank you very much. Uh, another question coming in. What is the position of having claimed tax benefit under the EIS scheme? The company goes into liquidation or the shares are of, uh, of minimum value. So again, Mark, do you wanna cover that one? Yeah, sure. Um, EIS companies do occasionally go bust. Um, the tax reliefs are there because of the level of risk involved in investing in early stage companies. Now, when they do, you can claim loss relief and your loss relief can be claimed against either capital gains tax of the current year or a future year or more normally against your income. Um, and this is a very specific uh, loss relief for shares in uh, unquoted trading companies. Now, the loss, as I say, is claimed against your income. The loss that you claim, if we, get, if we stick to the example of a £10,000 investment and a 40% taxpayer, if you've invested £10,000, you would normally have received £3,000 in income tax relief. That leaves you with a net loss of £7,000. And that is the figure that you can claim loss relief on, £7,000. All right. And that is if you choose to claim it against income, that is set against your income at your highest rate of tax, which should leave you with a tax repayment claim of £3,150 if you're a 40% taxpayer. If you're a, uh, sorry, a 45% taxpayer. If you're a 40% taxpayer, it comes in at £2,800. So a combination of the upfront income tax relief, which encourages you to invest in the first place and this loss relief which gives you something back if it is a loss um, does make you know eis quite attractive to people obviously if the company goes bust you still lose money but it's not quite such a high exposure as it would be if it wasn't an eis investment yeah and again the share loss relief is super important because i think there's appreciation by government that the fact that things do go wrong in early stage companies so Mm. Uh, if they do a bust or, or go down to negligible value, you can claim back some share loss relief on that as well as initial income tax relief. So thanks very much for explaining that. On the same kind of point, um, if the company does something within the first three years or it all goes wrong in the first three years, um, would investors get their tax relief clawed back? Uh, it does depend on the circumstances. If the company ceases to qualify within the three-year qualifying period or an individual 
dispose well if, if the company ceases to qualify all of your income tax relief will be clawed back i'm afraid um if the company goes bust then the clawback is limited to 30 percent of the proceeds you receive okay so typically if you get nothing um you won't have to make any payment re repayment of the income tax relief if you get one pound you'll have to pay HMRC back 30p. Um, but generally, people don't get anything. So if the company goes bust, you don't get a clawback. But if it ceases to qualify, you will get a clawback. And if, if you sell the shares before the three-year period are up, you will have to repay your income tax relief on the shares as well. Sure. Thank you very much. And then just a question on kind of the process of investing in an EI scheme uh, and claiming the tax back. So again, I don't know if that's best put to Fran or to, or to Mark. I'm happy to take that one. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, but please add anything, Mark. So generally what will happen is um, you'll do that through um, your accountant or it can be done through, you know, by yourself if you want to. There's quite a lot of advice online and guidance online that you can follow, but generally best done through an accountant. But what will happen is um, the, the platform or the institution through which you were investing or if it's a direct will uh, give you a very clear breakdown of exactly what the investments are that you have made, um, the, the, um, the tax year in which the shares were issued and so on and so forth. Um, and you will also get a copy of, increasingly a digital copy of an EIS-3 in respect of those two. Um, and so it's essentially a case of, at least in respect of applying for the relief upfront, um, once the investment has been made, um, issuing that to HMRC um, and, and getting the relief back accordingly with that. Um, for a fund like ours, which um, sort of can sometimes seem alarmingly making 50 or so investments per year, what we do is issue you with a sort of CSV or Excel form, uh, which has kind of the uh, UIR code and bits and pieces that basically you have to give to HMRC, and you can append that <laughs> to your return in one go rather than having to sort of faff around with 50 forms, which would be something of a nightmare. Um, but it's, it's always worth making sure you're in touch with your provider because they'll make sure you have the right information that you need to actually submit. Yeah, and again, I guess they all do it slightly differently, but uh, just to summarise, you, you invest, your money goes into the company, you get a share certificate, that might be sent to you, or it might be held by a nominee or a custodian if the, if the fund is using one of those. Yeah, um, yeah. Then after the company's been trading for four months, they can qualify uh, or go back to HMRC and say, look, we'd like to get our uh, EIS3 certificate back to investors. And again, EIS3 certificate, if you're an investor, that's the kind of golden ticket that says you can now... Uh, the company is qualified, absolutely guaranteed. Uh, you can now go and get your tax relief or, or, or claim your tax relief through us. You can either do that through self-assessment, can't you? Or you can go directly and head to HMRC and send that certificate in um, on the hoof when you receive it, essentially. And then, lo and behold, you get your 30% income tax relief paid to you and uh, away we all go off into the sunset, hopefully. And hopefully <laughs> that company goes on to be the next Airbnb or Uber or whatever else it might be. But, but yeah, that's hopefully gives you an idea of the process um, of how it all works. Again, Few questions here we can probably um, cover off quite quickly. Um, can a limited company benefit from EIS? Uh, no. Thank you. Um, uh, limited companies benefit <laughs> by helping because it helps them raise money. Yeah, so absolutely. So only individual investors can um, invest through EIS and get the tax relief. So yeah, you can't do that for a, a limited company or a company. Um, can you claim if you're not on employment or living off a pension now and how would it be paid? Well, the EIS income tax relief is a, is a tax reducer. In order to claim the relief, you have to have paid some income tax. So if you're live, someone who's living on investment income and a pension and so on, will still may still have a tax liability that you can offset with your EIS investment. Um, you won't have paid any tax on dividend income uh, you might have done on a private pension. Uh, that tax can be repaid. But it's important to stress that the um, if you invest £100,000, you do 30% income tax relief. But if you've only paid £10,000 in tax for the year, you will only get £10,000 back. Okay, the tax relief can reduce your liability to nil, but no more. So if you have got quite a small tax liability uh, because you've retired then 
it might not be as tax efficient and you should take personal tax advice uh, before investing. Excellent answer. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, again, can the EIS be retrospectively claimed after an investment has been made? Well, we we spoke earlier about the importance of advance assurance and, you know, I would always advise a company to get advance assurance. I'm sure in my experience, fund managers absolutely always insist on advance assurance before the investment was made. However, if someone has subscribed for shares in a company and it appears to qualify, there's no reason at all why the company can't apply for EIS status after the investment has been made. Um, yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, does the EIS scheme allow for income to be transferred to an ISA account? I guess the point there to make is that EIS schemes generally don't uh, pay out a dividend because they're so early stage. It's not really the idea that they're looking to pay out dividends. Um, and if they did, they would be taxable. And if they did, they're probably quite small. So I guess ultimately the income could be paid out, but it's, it's an unlikely scenario. It's probably more likely from a VCT perspective than an EIS one. Um, so hopefully that covers that one off. Uh, I'm just going to go and look in the Q&A section because I know a few uh, questions came in here. Yeah, here we go. One from Anthony. Um, it's the maximum you can invest in a tax year, two million for a knowledge intensive investment. Uh, Mark, you mentioned knowledge intensive investments earlier. So, uh, and is there a register to see if a company qualifies as knowledge intensive? Okay. Um, yes, an individual can invest up to two million pounds per tax year in knowledge intensive companies. Um, you can invest up to one million pounds normally. So the important thing is that the excess over one million is in knowledge intensive companies. Um, from the point of view of the advance assurance, it should say um, on the advance assurance from HMRC whether the company has qualified and the company should have set out in its advance assurance application how and why it thinks it, it qualifies as a knowledge intensive company. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um... Just one about loss relief again. Yeah, someone's saying here we could probably spend an whole hour on loss relief. Yeah, probably true. Um, but if a company sold for a fraction of the investment, can loss relief be claimed? So I guess has it, it's not necessarily gone bust, but it's just not doing very well. Uh, obviously, your investment has gone from maybe 10,000 to 1,000, let's say, for example. Can you at that point make a claim for loss relief? Again, probably one for Mark. Um, if you dispose of the shares at that point, yes, you would get an income tax relief clawback on the £1,000 at 30%. So you'd have to repay your £300 in income tax relief. Um, but you've still got a loss, which you can claim against income or capital gains uh, in the normal way. Um, there's, there's always the claim to the effect that an asset have come, has become of negligible value, which is what you do when the company goes into receivership or liquidation. Um, Rather, I, I think it would be difficult to argue with the revenue that shares which were still worth a thousand pounds were of negligible value. Um, so I think at that point you would just have to hang on to them or find someone to buy them off you if you desperately wanted to trigger your loss relief claim. Yeah, I, you can make a negligible claim relief, can't you? I think, but um, right. yeah, as you say, you've explained that perfectly. Um, I guess the other thing to say is companies do go bust there, so um it's actually better from an EI perspective that the company goes bust completely rather than kind of struggles along uh, and has a low value for a long time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so or perverse situation, I guess, in a sense. But. Yeah. The worst, the worst thing a company can do, I think, is, is just become dormant, shut up shop and just carry on uh, yes. existing in a dormant state because then it wouldn't be trading anymore yep. and people yep. would lose all their income tax relief, which, yeah. is, um, which is really quite disastrous. And one of the things I would say on that is going through a fund as opposed to say necessarily doing it uh, sort of completely independently, um, a fund will often have the capacity to put pressure on companies, you know, they're going to have a lot of rights to get information, uh, perhaps there are going to be observers on the board, maybe even actively involved on the board. And so they've got this involvement that can kind of keep track of things and try and prevent a situation like that. Um, and one other point I think might be relevant to the discussion is, you know, we're talking a lot about 
um, availability of getting the, the, um, the sort of shareholding realized or uh, disposed and so on. But it is generally typically best to think of EIS investments as illiquid because, um, as Mark mentioned earlier, up until the point of, say, a trade sale or an IPO, which is the, the way that they're most likely to exit by and large, um, there isn't really a secondary market for the most part. So it's it's tricky to find a buyer. So you want to think of these as longer term investments because they, they generally are. Yeah, uh, you make a point about secondary markets. Uh, Mark did as well, and there's a question here from John saying, is there a secondary market for businesses for, for VIS uh, funding? Um, as, as Brian absolutely correctly says, not really. Um, there's such an early stage. Obviously, the type of companies you're investing into here can't be on a, a share exchange. It could be AIM, I guess, but uh, at some stage. But generally, because they can't be valued, therefore you can't have them on exchange. It makes it difficult with the secondary market to pass on those shares. And, and of course, the ones that you want to get rid of are probably the ones that aren't doing very well, so they'd be even harder to kind of shift in that sense. So, so yeah, no, not not really a secondary market as such. Although I know that's something that many people are looking at uh, and trying to look at, trying to change. Um, Brian, you also mentioned there something I want to pick up on, and that's the role of the fund manager. Yeah. Uh, it's super important to make that point. Is when you're making an investment, uh, when your company's taking in investment, even. Uh, I think it's really important to take what a fund manager does and their role mm -hmm. in the investment. It's not just kind of money being handed over and uh, away right. you go. The fund manager plays an important role and it's smart money, not dumb money is what I'm very badly trying to say. But yeah, do you want to explain a bit more? Yes, absolutely. So of course you'll find each EIS fund will take its own approach. Uh, so it's very typical to see that a particular fund manager will have sector experience because you know the, the individual or individuals who are looking at the fund have just particular knowledge of engineering or healthcare or whatever it might be. Um, and what they're looking to do is use that experience um, and translate it into being in touch with the right companies, being in the right place at the right time and having the contacts to get the deal flow that is attractive. And so, you know, what you want to do as a fund manager is find companies that are at a, you know, a decent stage of traction. So they've shown some meaningful sense of having made progress. It's not just an idea on paper, but uh, at the same time, they've also got a significant amount of room for the valuation to grow, because of course that's where the benefit is in the investment itself. And so what a fund manager does is have an awful lot of experience in going through the due diligence essentially um, of understanding the investment, getting involved, selecting, picking one over the other um, and, and making those kinds of decisions as well as tracking and monitoring those investments on a, on a longer term basis and keeping an eye on the EIS status and understanding what the company's plans for exits are and uh, putting some pressure on them if we're getting close to the end of a, you know the, the fund holding period and no exit has come through. Um, for us, uh, so our fees are a little bit lower than other funds and partly we, we have it that way because we've kind of done a lot of upfront due diligence that, and that's what we're charging for. And we did a huge amount of data analysis on the market itself, um, which it's amazing to see actually the startup market itself grows at about 28% per year. So if you can invest in every single company, winners and losers, you know, you could get quite a, a reliable return on that basis. But um, what we did was look at that, look at the angels. So I'll answer the question on who's a super angel. Look at the angels who are um, investing um, in the market routinely. So maybe they have to have a minimum number of investments, minimum size, um, but also a minimum performance. So we actually set that at 28%, which is the market growth percentage. Um, of growth in their companies that they've made over the last five years. And we've qualified about 90 individuals to date. They share our deal flow with us. Uh, we in turn introduce them to the other angels and help bring more capital to the round. And that's how we source investments. Um, and that way, essentially what we are doing is plugging into this ecosystem and this network of, of businesses that are looking for funding, which to be frank, can be very difficult for an individual to do and to find source, you know, of course there are ways, there are absolutely, there are angel networks and they have deal flow, there are platforms and they have deal flow, but what you really want to be is getting in with the companies that raise and close a funding round almost before it's public knowledge. And so that's kind of what you want from a fund manager. You want to understand their deal flow strategy and how they're gonna get you those investments or access to those investments that you really might struggle to otherwise. Yeah, I think that I think that's the important point, isn't it, Fran? Is getting access to those investments. So again, right. you have your approach. We have uh, uh, sixty fund managers who are all doing this in different ways. We're finding exactly. companies in different ways. We're trying to find investors in different ways. 
But I think Paul mentions on the chat there that you want to find a fund manager who's not just going to take money in, but he's going to help grow and scale up that business and kind of hold their hand almost as they go through. And there's various different approaches again in the market to that and how people do that, whether it's taking a seat on the board in that company. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's some, some funds who do uh, specific yeah, marketing or CFO duties yeah. or it might All well sorts. be just contacts. Uh, yeah, as I say, it's not just, it's, it's not dumb money. You're not just putting your money into a, again, a small cap fund and you just check the value every week. But there's much more to it with an EIS fund. Um, there's a lot of handholding goes on, there's valuations, there's down rounds, up rounds, there's, there's a hell of a lot of moving different parts in an EIS fund. Right. So, Right, right. going on uh, absolutely um so a few more questions coming in so let's uh let's go back to those again probably one for you here mark on the company side um, can eis be used to support an overseas subsidiary yes there's no reason why not the company has to be uh have a uk permanent establishment that's all um spending money on an overseas subsidiary is absolutely fine and yeah in terms of the good that does to the uk economy if you're if you're setting up a sales office in North America, for instance, um, then why wouldn't the enterprise investment scheme allow a company to, to do that, to drive exports? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's rules around the subsidiary and it, yeah, it has to be a 90% qualifying subsidiary and so on and so forth. But no, in principle, no reason at all. And again, going the other way, you could be a company coming in from, say, Republic of Ireland, for example, and wanting to set up in the UK, um, you could set up, as you, as you say, a permanent establishment, which is basically an office or a warehouse or, or some kind of establishment, or it could be a director in the business who's based in the UK uh, yes, and sign agreements right. on behalf of that company. So, so, yeah, there are ways of different companies coming in from abroad to set up in the UK and qualify for EIS, aren't they? Yeah. Perfect. Okay, we're moving on. We're, we've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, we've still got a fair few questions coming in on the chat and on the question and answers. We're trying to go through the question and answer ones uh, as much as we can, obviously. We've still got some more uh, to cover here. Um, just going back to the tax side and some of the different parts of tax, a few questions about inheritance tax here and how that works. Um, so what happens on death uh, of an EIS investment? Does it pass on to a beneficiary? Does it finish? Uh, again, probably one for Mark, if you want to cover it on Mark. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, on death, there is firstly no clawback of the EIS income tax relief. There is no capital gains tax uh, chargeable at that point, and it should also be exempt from inheritance tax. Um, so if you have got a lot of EIS investments, dying can be quite a good idea. Um, sorry. <laughs> Additionally, if you claim deferral relief, and this is quite important for a lot of people in their, in their overall tax planning, if you've claimed deferral relief, the deferred gains do not come back into charge. Right. Okay. Now, what do your beneficiaries receive is something that you also need to consider, though, because your beneficiaries receive shares in an unquoted company, which may be difficult to sell. And your beneficiaries may be more interested in getting hold of cash. When your beneficiaries receive those shares, and it's up to you, how you leave them and who you leave them to in your will. But when your beneficiaries receive those shares, they will have uh, a base cost of the market value at the date of death. And they will no longer be exempt from tax when they sell. So the capital gains tax exemption doesn't transfer over to your beneficiaries, but hopefully they will have an uplifted base cost. But there's no direct tax implications. There's no repayment of income tax relief. Your capital gains that you've deferred in the past just disappear. And there shouldn't be an, an inheritance tax liability either, subject to them having been held for two years before you die. Sure. And just another follow-up point on the IT exemption. If a company loses its IS, EIS eligibility in, in the first three years, uh, you would lose your IT exemption at the same time, would you not? Not, not necessarily. I mean, if, if, um, if you were running a pub that suddenly became a hotel, you would, within the three years, you would lose your EIS exemption. But the hotel would still, I think, be um, available for IHT, business property relief. So, you know, all EIS companies should qualify 
for IHT exemption, but not all business property relief qualifying companies uh, qualify for EIS. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much for the clarification. Perfect. Uh, again, there's some questions that I think we can cover off pretty easily um, just on the Q&A, so I'll just fire through a couple of those. Um, John's asking, in order to qualify for advanced assurance from HMRC, should the company already have a lead investor on board? Um, so, yeah, when you go for your advanced assurance, HMRC want to see that you have some indication of where the money's going to come from. So you'll need to tell them who the investor is or if it's a fund, who the, who the fund is going to be invested with. So, and that is as much as name, address, uh, HMRC want a really strong indication of where the money's going to come from. The reason for that is what they don't like is speculative investments. So over the years, they've seen a number of advanced assurance applications come in. They've approved those applications and then that company's never gone on to raise a, a pound in investment. So they want an idea of where you're going to be able to get the money from as a company. Um, so I think that covers that one. Is there an advantage investing in companies who are listed on AIM versus not? Um, not really. It depends on what you, uh, what you think is going to be a good company, really. So uh, that, that's really investor choice as to what type of companies you want to invest into. I guess... Maybe that point around... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Point around valuation, I guess, potentially. Because I suppose you could say that AIM companies potentially are slightly de risk because they're a little bit later stage. They've obviously gone past that. But then their point of growth, their potential growth might be limited a little bit by that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say it's an indication of growth. The fact you're on AIM in the first place says you've got a more established company. So, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for and, um, shipping in. Although some, EI, some AIM companies do qualify for EIS, not all will. No, no absolutely. Very, yeah. very many won't qualify for EIS at all. Yeah, and there are some funds out there that specialise just in AIM qualifying EIS companies and um, they are available. Um, there was a question earlier, actually, Fran, probably one to ask you is about how you find EIS funds and how you kind of research them and choose between all that. As I say, there's about 60 in the market at the moment, how you choose between them. Are there any kind of good sources or referrals that you can make for, for investors to look at these type of things? Sure. Well, obviously, I can plug yourselves because the EIS Association <laughs> in and of itself uh, is a great place to start because um, if you know you visit the website, look at some of those materials, you can see some of the funds that are actually listed there. And I believe you've actually got some videos and quite a lot of materials from fund managers directly that you can flip through and look through. So that would be a really good place to start. If you want something quite a bit more comprehensive and if, you, if you've got the time to spend um, and in some cases a little bit of money to spend, there are um, uh, platforms such as MyCap is a good example. Um, they actually really do a lot of in-depth uh, reviews on different fund managers, uh, the, the strategies they have in place, the past performance and, and, and so on, the team. Um, and you know you can either look like touch at the top level information about the minimum investment size or the timings um, of the investments and see or you can really go in depth and read the full reports um, and so you know we, we've got a micro report and you'll find most fund managers do so so that can be a good place to look as well as opposed to just kind of putting in google and hoping for the best based on search results yeah no absolutely thank you for the plug so all our members are listed on our website and you can see open offers from them there uh, and you mentioned MyCap, uh, just to, for clarity and again full full market coverage is MyCap. there's uh there's hardman and co there yeah, is yeah, tax efficient review and there is mj hudson allenbridge as well who all do yes reviews of the market too but brilliant um similarly uh, we've got about eight minutes left seven minutes left um Updates, uh, funds, crowdfunders all kind of vary in how good they are at reporting back to investors on how they're well at their EIS portfolio or company is doing. Um, again, let us know what you do and let us know kind of what the market does generally, please. Yeah, um, generally speaking, you want to make sure that uh, the fund you're investing in or if you're investing directly, the company itself commits to you that they will report to you at least quarterly. Um, it's quite rare to get very, very detailed management information because that's uh, often for sort of much later stage VCs and they'll start renegotiating the whole shareholders agreement and set everything up from scratch. But if you've got quarterly reporting, you know where you stand. Um, and, and just sort of how things are progressing. Um, every fund manager that operates a nominee or custodian service as we do is obliged by the FCA to produce a, sort of a, a CAS um, holdings report once a year, which is looking at the client money that they've held or that they've managed for you, doing a, a kind of clear breakdown on any distributions that have been made, uh, any changes in your shareholding, um, and essentially evaluating um, your portfolio at least once a year, which is, I suppose, work being done for you if you're not self-managing your portfolio. So that's an advantage. 
Um, but yes, you'll, you'll then typically find that funds, so we, we do a biannual report for our fund portfolios. So twice yearly, we will do a kind of rundown of how things are going. It's got some market commentary. We actually work with MJ, um, um, oh gosh, I'm not Ellen Bridge, sorry, apologies. Uh, the names escapes me. Not, not Andre Hudson either, uh, who were previously Allen Bridge. Um, but the name will come back to me. XPM Consulting is another one. And that's the one that we use. Um, and they do some market commentary and analysis for us, which we then supplement. We've got all of our portfolio data. Um, and then also, you know, you will get some um, funds as we do. Uh, I don't know that they all do this, but any update that comes through ad hoc from companies, they'll put up on an online dashboard so that you can actually just read and have a look and peruse um, at your leisure essentially which can be quite handy if you really want to keep tab tabs on things because some companies will report it's rare but they will report as often as monthly so that can be good so it, it is important to make sure up front that you do understand what information you will be getting because there is nothing worse than investing in a company uh, and finding that they do just go quiet they take your money in and they go quiet so make sure that they're, they're bound by something from day one Absolutely. Good advice. Um, we've got about five minutes left. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of questions. Thank you very much, Sonia, for the questions. I've been super impressed with, one, the number of questions and two, the quality of them. So thanks very much for uh, contributing um, to the discussion here. Um, it's probably a good place to finish, though, I think, to talk about exits and returns, seeing as we are at the exit pretty much of this webinar. Um, so, Fran, do you want to give some idea of kind of what can you expect as an investor as an exit? What's high? What's low? What's in the middle? Mm -hmm. How long does it all take? Yeah, just to kind of run through, please. Sure. So a lot of funds will target um, some sort of variation of around two or three X is quite common. Um, so if you put in that £10,000, they're trying to get you 30000 back. Um, and of course, each will have its own strategy for doing that. Um, some explain them better than others. Obviously, I would say that we, we believe we explain ours incredibly well because we can uh, you know, really go through it in detail and kind of track how we hope to get that kind of uh, performance. But um, we talked earlier about how it's important to think of EIS investments as generally illiquid until point of exit. So generally, most funds will be targeting exits within three to five years or so, or for health healthcare and medical devices, and um, especially anything in pharma, you might be looking at 10 or 15 years down the line. So it is important to factor that in um, with sectors. I have seen some funds targeting um, 10x returns uh you do you do see funds talk about that i'd love to know how they break that down that's some phenomenal uh exit activity if they can but of course what you do see is that you have one or two companies that really really outperform and they do get returns of 10x 30x 50x it does happen and they make up for the companies that unfortunately do fail and return absolutely nothing and then you've got those ones in the middle as we talked about the awkward ones that just seem to not want to exit at all um, and so, yeah, there are different ways that companies will manage it, but normally you will see funds will um, set it all up so that they receive everything in one lump sum and they distribute it to you. And it's worth paying attention, of course, to the fees that will be owed at that point and make sure that you're you know, investing in something competitive so that you keep as much of your uh, investment as possible. Yeah, that's a great summary. Thanks so much, Fran. I think we always explain it. So if you think of an EIS fund with 12 companies in it, and I, you're going to tell me that's way too few, I know. But uh, if you think of a company <laughs> a fund with 12 companies in it, do you know what? Three or four are probably going to go bust or, 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 go, or, go, or go belly up. So that's where your share loss relief kicks in. That's why share loss relief is really important. Two or three, four, maybe bumble along, and it'll be those two or three that give you the massive stellar returns, and they'll be the kind of stellar outperformers. And that's what will drive your return, that two, three, hopefully north of that X that you talked about there. So yeah, super important diversification, I think is the key that we're all learning here today. Um, right. Just coming up to 1.58. So hopefully we've covered maybe not every question that's been asked today, whether it's been live or the questions that were sent through before, but hopefully we've touched on at least every subject that we possibly could with EIS and SEIS. There's a whole lot of rabbit holes we could have gone down, I'm sure. And I'm sure <laughs> if anyone wants to do another session like this where we kind of broaden out a little bit or go into a little bit more depth, uh, we can arrange that with Master Investor and Tim and the guys there. But for the moment, I'll pass back to Tim and uh, just to do a kind of um, brief uh, finish and, and let us know what other events Master Investor have got planned. Tim, over to you. Thank you, Mark. And uh, thank you to Fran and, and, uh, and Uruma. <laughs> uh, that, that was really genuinely fascinating. Um, I, I found it useful. I was trying to make notes as we went through, so I'm sure there's our... Um, our audience will have done as well. Um, all that remains really is for me to uh, just let the audience know about future events. We've got um, a full list of events is available on our website. Um, so if you go to events.masterinvestor.co.uk, 
uh, you'll be able to see a full list. I'll just put up a, a selection on the screen here. Um, now, the other point I should add is that we have a guide from the EISA, um, which I'm very pleased to say that we have uh, we've been involved with. Um, I've got that up on a link to it up on the screen here. Um, you can download that guide. Um, it's uh, extremely useful and will answer some of the questions perhaps that we've not been able to get around to today. Um, I should add that there have been so many questions. I think it does demonstrate the um, strong engagement that we've got here. Uh, we will try and make a, a record of all the questions we've got and see if we can address them in some way uh, going forwards. Um, so our next event will be the 22nd of April, which will be the spring update from Jim Mellon. Um, and I would also add, please do look out for our community survey. As always, Master Investor, we're trying to find out what we can do to better serve our audience. So please do keep an eye out for that and come back to us with your thoughts. Uh, finally, uh, if you do have any questions, recommendations, feedback of any, any sort, uh, you can contact us at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Um, so I'll just say, uh, once again, thank you very much to uh, Mark and Fran and Mark. Uh, I hope everyone has found this uh, as useful as I have. And uh, I hope that we will see you all again soon. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Thanks. Bye, everyone.